Andrew. And I'm Spencer, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with the artist Mary Mattingly, whose work explores various societal and ecological issues related to the climate crisis. Her latest installation, Public Water, is on view at Prospect Park in Brooklyn through September 7th. Mary's work has been exhibited at institutions including Storm King, the International Center of Photography, and the Brooklyn Museum. Her Ecotopian Library project is currently on view at the Colorado University Art Museum in Boulder, and will travel later this year to Bozeman, Montana and London, Ontario. Dealing with the understories of our history and present and offering possibilities for the future through various forms of media, Mary's work provides opportunities for audiences to engage with the critical elements that make up our society. Let's get her on the line. Hi, Mary. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. To start, I wanted to bring up the manifesto you published in 2015. In it, you write that collective traumas are known to change our collective sense of what is possible. And hearing this statement now, how do you view it in the context of this past year with the pandemic and this particular moment we're in? Collectively, when something traumatic happens to a culture or a society, um, it changes what people can imagine. Mm -hmm. And I think that with coronavirus, there's been a little bit of both where, for instance, I think in New York, I was struck with how many people were uh, reimagining mutual aid, maybe not reimagining, but strengthening mutual aid. And, and, and maybe strengthening is the wrong word, formalizing mutual aid into <laughs> structures and systems that were more informal before. And so I guess I'll use that as an example and backtrack again and say formalizing uh, mutual aid was really helpful in a way because it, it let other people come into a process. People who are used to certain technological tools and had access to the internet. Mm. It also continued to put forth systems that I think folks are used to, um, nonprofit systems, industrial systems, systems that I think with more space could be reimagined. So I, th I guess, you know, when I, when I read that manifesto from 2015, there are certain things that I, I might step back now and say, uh, they're, they're much more complex than how I wrote I wanted to write something definitive, maybe for myself, but um, as time goes by, I, I do understand the complexity and that some of the things that I wrote, they're more gray areas too. Mm. It was the best that you knew at the time, and it's been seven years almost, you know, and I, I think that it's interesting that you, as an artist, can continue to evolve these things too. They're not stuck in time. That was a manifesto in 2015, you know, and I love that you're relooking at things as the world changes. Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about many of those same issues, but maybe quite a bit. I've been thinking about what ecotopias can be and if there can be such a thing as a utopia. I would assume it's plural and there isn't just one. But can there be something that could be looked at in a way that's that's not just looking at humans, but it's looking at non-humans? And, and I think that's where ecotopias can come alive. And I've been thinking about how this could 
maybe result in, in some sort of formal platform or library, that, which is a project I've been interested in kind of pursuing. Mm. There's this other area in the manifesto, too, about sharing underrepresented histories. And I, I think that that's another area that's gained a lot of necessary attention, maybe even traction, we could say, over the past year, especially with the movement for Black Lives and conversations around memorials and monuments. Socially and ecologically, your work explores a lot of this in depth. And I'm wondering, could you talk about how you're thinking about these underrepresented histories right now, these stories that are so often overlooked? The more people have platforms and voices to share underrepresented histories and stories, the more people have an awareness of of something that's outside of themselves. And it's sort of like I grew up in a in a small town and not that many people traveled or left. And I think when I was able to leave, you could say my world exploded. I was I had access to, you know, so many different um, perspectives and points of view that I just didn't have before. And so I think I think it's essential for a society to have more cross pollination. And, you know, maybe the, the problem with that is that when it gets to be so much, it could be deafening. So um, how does a person filter and how does a person take something in in a way that is meaningful? Mm. Your last installation, Public Water at Prospect Park in Brooklyn, had a lot of attention, incredible project. So I was just curious with starting there, what was the impetus for this particular project? And and from you, we'd love to hear kind of all about it. Well, it started with Michaela from More Art asking me directly if I would want to work on something with them that had to do with water. And water is one of the things I, I can't stop thinking about. In the town I grew up in, it was it wasn't drinkable. It was like agricultural town where uh, the well water was polluted from DDT and other pollutants. And so it was something that we had to figure out how to get access to. And that stuck with me from when I was a child. And when I was leaving home, it was the year 2000 and Bechtel had privatized water in Bolivia and with the World Bank and it was international news. Tens of thousands of people were protesting because people couldn't afford the water. And the first thing that came to mind was that Michaela and more art, and I needed to address um, water privatization. It's something that I think is under the radar, but is happening quickly all over the world. And in the United States, more and more with companies like Viola and American Water. And and that was our starting point. So we discussed, you know, there are so many forms of water crisis from privatization to pollution to access. And we were just trying to find a way to tell a story not as a warning, but a story that could highlight different different ways to move forward within a, a world where water is becoming more scarce. So we worked on a lot of different ideas and finally came to the realization that if we didn't work within our immediate area, it would just be uh, less meaningful and more watered down. <laughs> Sorry, cheesy. <laughs> so we just took on this research topic, the New York City watershed, how it started how it was constructed, who was pushed out, what lands were taken, what lands there was more compromise with, uh, how it's affecting farmers today and who live in the watershed, that's the Catskills and the Delaware watershed, how we could tell that story through a website and then also furthermore through a sculpture in Prospect Park. And the sculpture changed over time with coronavirus. It was initially going to be more performative meaning there would be actors who were performing from who were in New York City's watershed upstate and would come to the sculpture and offer New Yorkers water and tell a story about 
their position within the watershed water. And right now the sculpture is in Prospect Park and it cleans water. And what it does is it, it mimics the way that the watershed works. So there are different layers with um, different sets of plants and, and geological soils and rocks that are coming from the watershed area and it's just filtering the water. And so when the water gets to the bottom, you can drink it. So far, we're not really still allowed to fulfill that part of the project. Right. And, and, but it's about exposing the sort of understory, like this idea of education through experience that you're, you know, you want to make something visible through for an audience that's, that seems so big, you can't understand it. You know, how do we, we visit the Ashokan Reservoir or something, but we don't know how that gets to our taps in Manhattan and, and how that all works. How did you go about designing it and, and building it, the actual sculpture? What was the thinking around that? I mean, part of the thinking was to use materials that were accessible that anybody could look at and say, hey, that's metal conduit that's used for electrical wiring. Those are zip ties. That's screen that I might use on a porch or something like that. Uh, the plants are fairly recognizable because they're from the watershed. And uh, they're all structured in in this spherical shape that, yeah, is supposed to reference a core, uh, like a core sample from the earth. So it's sort of like a section of the earth coming out. And it flows through that system and through these plastic tubes so you can see the water cycling from plant basin to plant basin and then finally into these like really typical water coolers like from Home Devo or Lowe's or something. Mm. <laughs> Along the way when you were researching it and learning, I assume you didn't know that much about this um, and, and this, this project was probably an opportunity for you to learn the mechanics of it, but what were some of the social, political, economic sort of mechanisms that you found were affecting clean water access? One of the stories that I think about a lot was the Ramapo Water Company, and that was this water company that was buying up land in the watershed in anticipation that New York City would need more water from the Catskills and Delaware area. And so this company was able to buy the water and effectively would have held New York City at a particular size. It could not grow or expand beyond that. There wouldn't have been enough water access um, or it would have been expensive and there would have been privatization issues. So I think that what happened there was that New York State and New York City politically had to had to form an alliance and agree that the Ramapo Water Company couldn't do what they were going to do. So the decision for them to buy the land was eventually repealed in the early 1900s. And there were these times where uh, New York City needed to expand and it might happen again. And business people were really shrewd. New York City was really shrewd in a bunch of other instances as well. Like there were times where um, city officials would hire people to go burn barns in the Croton area when people wouldn't leave via eminent domain. They would just burn the properties. Um, so there there were all sorts of things happening like that. And then, of course, before that, Native Americans were pushed out. And that really happened like before the collect pond and, you know, at the beginning of Wall Street, essentially, where Wall Street was literally a wall that started to push people north. That all had to do with the water. It was all connected to the water and power struggles. Mm. You mentioned your ecotopian thinking earlier and the library, the ecotopian library. Could you talk about what this project is exactly and also how you're going about choosing the books and the materials and the things that are included within it? 
my ideal fantasy for the Ecotopian Library would be that it's like floating on the water in New York City, and um, anyone can go there. And it sort of it functions like a library where you can get a library card, but here you have the opportunity to have a longer term residency. You could stay overnight or um, stay with the materials for longer. And they're books. They're things that you can read, uh, but they're also cultural and natural objects that I hope can be read too. So the excitement for me, I think, is bringing objects in that people are asked to read or to take home and then bring back. So maybe somewhere between a a tool library and a traditional public library uh, where you can check more objects out, potentially considered artworks or just uh, regular objects. But there's a large section on utopian studies and earth sciences, um, also forestry and traditional ecological knowledge and ecological philosophies. And that's coming together when people email me uh, with ideas for books. And I usually reach out to people for objects or ideas for objects. No one has sent an object yet, but people have sent books and email ideas. Yeah. It's just a lot of this thinking needs to be curated, collated, and put in, in, in the context of each other. Because right now these are these are quite disparate and it requires a point of view and a curation, which is what you're doing. So we're excited about that project. So many of your projects have taken place on a barge, you know? So so we were thinking about Swale in 2016 and 17 and uh, this year with Vanishing Point. I guess kind of a simple question, but, but I'm interested is what can you do on a barge that you can't do on land? Like why a barge? Why? So many things. Tell me all about that. <laughs> well, there's so much drama on a barge, first of all. Like you're on the water. That's dramatic already. It ends up feeling like a land extension in a city where it's almost impossible to do anything on land anywhere. And so I, th- I think of it as a bridge, like it's a bridge between urban and rural in the cases of some of the projects that I've been able to do on barges. I don't know, they're like sagas, you know, the way that they come together in all of the bureaucracy in New York City. And then, you know, everything from the insurance to the permits to the the approvals to um, getting on there and it, to it being so magical. So Swale is a 100 and 130 by 40 foot deck barge. So it's a flat barge. It's 12 feet out of the water. And on it is an apple orchard and then perennial edible plants. And so you can come on to the barge anytime it's open, which usually follows the park's hours. So if it's dawn to dusk or something like that. And then you can harvest plants for free. People are always surprised that it's free and are never sure if they want to do it because it's free. But then once somebody convinces them, usually there's a a docent who can convince them that it's like okay to pick the plants. Um, then people usually go away with something or eat something there, or just have this experience where they're on this platform that's moving up and down, but they're surrounded by land. So it's a little bit disorienting. And then in the, in the field of your vision, it's impossible not to see the skyline of New York City. So then it looks like the skyline's always moving and you're on this flat land. And it just it's just a way to, I think, ask people to look at their surroundings differently. And I think a lot of times on that project, when people go onto it, they start thinking about everything before they eat it. They're like, well, where's the water from? Is the soil healthy? Where do these plants come from? Why should I be putting them into my body? Which, you know, all questions that I wish I asked myself all the time whenever I was eating food. And I think it just engages people in in issues of food and politics in the city and uh, the idea of public food and how that could be a reality in a place where right now it's really not. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's just such a strong through line in all your projects is this idea of possible real future. Like, this is happening. This is real. It's uh, it's something you can engage with. Which of your projects do you think it's kind of closest to your own fantasies of the future? I think Swale has. And I say that because, well, Swale was able to kind of be a precursor for one of the parks in New York City, um, Concrete Plant Park, to open up their own foodway. So that's a place where anyone can go 24 hours a day and pick fresh foods for free. And it's the only place in the city where anyone can go. It's different than community gardens where there are certain people who have access to them if they got a plot. I mean, I guess in terms of envisioning futures, it's impossible to think about a city like New York surviving without many places where there is access to food that can be picked from the land and access to water that's accessible right on the island that's clean. I think what a lot of the projects have to do with is reconciling the spaces between urban and rural and the interdependency of, of both of those spaces and how it's rare that as New Yorkers, we have to think about that. And like growing up on the border of Massachusetts and Connecticut outside of Springfield, we saw, you know, food go into the city and garbage come out basically. And it's not sustainable, of course. It's not sustainable for those rural spaces, not sustainable for the city. So so I could imagine those 30,000 acres of public parkland that the city cares for being places where people can also pick food. So much of what you're talking about here, but also just kind of as a through line of all your work is systemic thinking, thinking about how systems work. And I wanted to bring up your 2018 project, What Happens After, in this context. You know, it involved dismantling a military vehicle and deconstructing its mineral supply chain, focusing on cobalt. Through highlighting cobalt, what did you hope to achieve? And what can tracing the origins of something, a material, an object, help reveal? I think it reveals so many truths about extraction that are difficult to reckon with and to see. And I think it's like you were saying earlier, making something visible is, I think, one of the more important things that art can do. Hmm. Well, art does art does a lot of things, but Besides questioning, I think making something visible is something that artists are really situated to do. So I think the Cobalt project started out because I was trying to make a portrait of my camera and I had given up almost everything that I had possession of in 2013. I was I had come off of living on this barge project called the Water Pod and there I wasn't we didn't have trash, so we didn't have anywhere to put any anything that wasn't useful to us anymore. So we'd had to try to figure out a way to use it. And then getting back onto land and I moved into my art studio in Brooklyn, realized I had so many things I didn't really need, uh, tried to slowly make large sculptures out of them for kind of a different but connected reason. Um, But I think I came to the point where I had like a backpack of stuff that I really knew I needed and they all had to do with photography. So there was like my computer, hard drives, camera, um, negatives. And so I thought it was time to assess the photography and was able to go to the University of Michigan and do research on it. There's a mine there 
in the Yellow Dog Plains mine called Eagle Mine. And it's the first mine in the United States in about 30 years that's been able to mine cobalt. It hasn't been affordable uh, to mine it in the United States. So that's basically why it's cheaper labor elsewhere. And so it's mainly harvested in the Congo. About 60% is harvested in the Congo still today. And the U.S. military is the largest buyer in the world for pure cobalt. So they're getting it directly, but more indirectly through the Congo, through companies who extract from the Congo and are overseas and, and are from other countries. And then the military buys it and uses it for weapons. And in this case, I was looking at an LMTV, a light medium tactical vehicle, and it's in there to increase heat resistance in the LMTV. So say the truck ran over a bomb or something like that, it wouldn't it wouldn't hurt the people inside. So yeah, realizing that the camera was connected to the LMTV mm. and watching the supply chain for cobalt and how it is now being harvested in Michigan so that the military has a backup essentially in case something goes wrong with the supply chain. But how it can't even like it can't be smelted in the United States. It has to go to Sudbury, Canada and then it has to come back. Um, I just thought that, you know, this the circuitous roots of these supply chains just hide it. And there's very little way to know what you're getting into and how you're participating. And I think that's good for the system. Uh, that's why it's still working. Because I, I do think that if, if people knew where uh, the minerals were coming from and the conditions they were coming from, people wouldn't be consuming in the way that we are. Mm. Do you ever just walk down the sidewalk and, and think this way? Is this something you do often, material by material, kind of <laughs> unpacking what's around? <laughs> Actually, since I bundled almost everything, I uh, people have mailed me things, like strangers mail me things, which is amazing. And I find things on the street and I like have this little practice where every morning I try to make a, a small sculpture. So they're like little bundles. So I guess I do. <laughs> Do you think that greater engagement with this sort of materials-based thinking that we're talking about could reshape our relationship to the planet? And maybe not just from a social perspective, but also an ecological one? I do. I think about this a lot in terms of there's a systems thinker named Donella Meadows, and she says that there's the four best ways you can change a system are, I'll start with the fourth, that would be like a protest or an event, and that works pretty well until like the other side gets better. The third best way would be to change an element of a system. So that could be like the president or like the president of a company, um, mm. which may or may not work because Jimmy Dimon, you know, who runs Chase Bank says, well, you could fire me, but somebody else will replace me and they'll probably do the same thing. So that's change an element of a system, which is like a, an effective way to change a system as we've seen, but not always. And then the second and most effective way would be through communication. So it's like what you guys are doing, mm. what artists are doing. And then the, the most effective way, and this is kind of a yes and, is um, to change the purpose of the system. And that, that takes all of those things happening simultaneously. And so I do think, I think it's possible for people to rethink, but a lot of people have to be working on it simultaneously. So it's sort of like, um, you know, what you were saying earlier about different utopian projects happening simultaneously and we need to link up. Mm -hmm. Like, that's true. We need, we need to link up and make heterotopias that can support each other. So as we emerge from this 16 months of pandemic and more and more people become vaccinated and 
things begin to open up a little bit more again, what's giving you the greatest hope? Well, I like to, I like to think that I have hope. <laughs> like it'd be impossible to act if you didn't have hope. And so I have been looking towards artists actually more in the past and, and writers, but I've been re-looking at the work of Meryl Eucles, who is an artist who did this really fascinating project in the 70s called Touch Sanitation, where she um, walked across New York City and met every sanitation worker and shook their hand and Hmm. established a relationship with each person. You know, I've been thinking about that a lot because now we're able to be social in person again and the importance of touch and of being in person I didn't really understand it before. I think to the extent that I do now, I just finished three weeks of an intense program where I I teach at this MFA low program in Hartford and it's three weeks, 12 hour days. And it was so much time with people after a year of not really being with people. I think that the enlivening experience of just being together was, uh, there was just so much energy and there's so much people want to do. So I guess I do, I do have, I do have hope in that way that there are a lot of people actively working on making better spaces, making spaces that are more just and equitable and loving just more and more every year. So I guess I'm hopeful about people. Mary, thank you for your time. It was so great to have you with us. Thanks. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.